Epilogue World War I As I wrote this epilogue, I was flying back from a wedding where I was honored to be the officiant. It was the 61st wedding I have officiated, but the first time one of the parties getting married was a widower. Five years ago, the groom lost his wife tragically to cancer, leaving him alone with his newly born son. Man, can you imagine? And yet, years later, he met a young woman, and they got married. And the song they chose to play for their recessional thumped with joy as the gathered friends and family stood and cheered and clapped as they walked into their new life. The words of the song struck me. They said, God of mercy, sweet love of mine, I have surrendered to your design. May this offering stretch across the skies and these hallelujahs be multiplied. On the plane ride home, the man in the seat ahead of me on the other side of the aisle was watching a movie. It was the 2019 Sam Mendes film, 1917, an epic cinematic masterpiece whose staggering genius and Oscar-winning visual storytelling is probably not best experienced on a five-inch screen on the back of an airplane seat's headrest. But whatever. That film was the last film I saw in theaters before the pandemic. It haunted me then, and it haunts me now. As I watched that film play out in front of me, glancing at my co-traveler's screen every once in a while, I was reminded of the story of Abraham. In that movie, 1917, we followed the journey of two English soldiers, Blake and Schofield, who were caught in the fog of war during World War I. Their impulses are simply Darwinian, just don't die. Make it through the war and get back home. That's their vision. That was their view of life. But then these two soldiers are given a radical clarity of a new vision for life. Their general tells them that the next day at dawn, a large regiment of soldiers in a forward position was going to march into a deadly ambush. Blake and Schofield's job was to race across enemy territory and deliver a message that would stop 1,600 soldiers from walking into a massacre, including Blake's own brother. In the span of mere minutes, Blake goes from sleeping under a dogwood tree to willingly leaving the safety of the trenches in the front lines in an attempt to save his brother. And throughout the course of the film, we watch Schofield turn from a begrudging and reluctant participant to one who owns the mission to the point of being willing to sacrifice even his own life. He takes on the vision. But these two men were never given any details. They are simply told to leave the trenches and enter no man's land where death reigned. They were never given a clear map. There were no GPS coordinates. I found myself thinking how much less dangerous their mission would have been if they only had a drone with an HD camera. They could have proceeded with surety and confidence. Their fear would have been nearly eliminated. But they did not have those things. They were never told how to accomplish the mission. They were only given a mission so large, so important, so compelling, that it called them to leave and risk death. One could argue that the story of 1917 is not so different from the story of the life of Abraham, who found himself caught up in a story far bigger and far more dangerous than he could have ever imagined. The things God did and said provided the vision. And like Blake and Schofield, he was not given a map. He was not told how things would come to be. He was given a vision, a call, and not much else. But the things Abraham did in response to those unconditional, utterly gracious gifts became the model for our mission which is faith, trust, and obedience. We take the mission into ourselves and we live it out. We find a way to make it happen. It also reminds me of the apostles. 
who found themselves caught up in a story far bigger and far more dangerous than they could have ever imagined. From fishermen to being on the front lines of a cosmic war, somehow the story and the life of Jesus changed them from comfortable and selfish to willing martyrs. Immediately after this powerful film ended, I just sat in my seat on the plane in silence, thinking about all these things. I thought perhaps the film would be so moving that the man in front of me would do the same, but instead he just started another movie promptly. It was the film Sonic the Hedgehog. He just jumped right into it. No pausing for reflection, no deep pondering of the meaning of a life, just a cartoon, anthropomorphic blue hedgehog wearing white tennis shoes. I got all judgy and then was like, wait, Jim Carrey's in this? That's kind of cool. Uh, how quickly we lose the plot, eh? Driver's license. My son, Justice, got his driver's license a few weeks ago. A few days later, he secured his first job. I have a bowl of marbles on my desk at work, with each marble representing how many weeks I have left with him until he graduates from high school and leaves the house for college. Every parent, when they start, has roughly 936 weeks, 936 marbles, from the time your child is born until they graduate high school. There are, in my son's jar, a hundred marbles left. Next week, it will be down to double digits. God, I'm running out of time. Soon, like Blake and Schofield, Justice will be leaving the trenches of safety at home and entering a world without protection of the things he's been used to. I'm reminded of that when we were logging the required 50 hours of driving practice. You never realize how many dangerous, horrible, distracted drivers are on the road until you're teaching one of your kids how to drive. It's like, slow down, idiots! I don't know what joys and what tragedies await my son. I don't know how life is going to go. And I'm reminded of that every time he backs out of the driveway and drives away. His job's only two minutes away, like 0.7 miles, away from our house, and I still have him text me when he arrives. I'm practicing letting go. I'm not good at it. He matters too much to me. But here's the terrible truth. I can't protect him. I can't. That's why this book matters to me. It's why Abraham matters to me. It's a field guide for the messy, dangerous, awful, beautiful, thrilling, fantastic, good world we all live in. The world my son, and a couple years later my daughter, will be entering. I'm so grateful for the scriptures in general because they reveal who God is. They show me how to live life with God. They change me. Without that, I would be lost. But in particular, the account of the life of Abraham has meant so much to me. It's given me a guide to try to hand to my children to help them navigate. It's a calibration, a compass, a way to self-reflect, self-correct in an ever-confusing, ever-changing, unpredictable world. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives a powerful message to the people, offering a stunning vision for life. Deuteronomy 6, 5. The Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What a vision. As my kids prepare to leave the house, the story of Abraham has allowed me to share with them wisdom about what it means to walk with God and to love God. It allowed me to talk with them as we sit at home and drive along the road. It's a prayer when they lie down at night and before I drop them off at school. 
The Four Lessons of Abraham. Number one, loving God means being loyal and committed to him, even if it costs you. To my son and my daughter, only God is worth your ultimate allegiance. Do the inner work. Fight the inner temptation to give your ultimate loyalty to anyone or anything else. In the words of Jesus, if you seek God first in his kingdom, above all, everything else that's good in this world will be thrown in. Lesson two, loving God means trusting him even when it doesn't make sense. My son and my daughter, trusting God, not only with part of your life, but with the entirety of your life, will require vast courage. Do the hard work of understanding your own, often confusing motives, and your own, always confusing fears. Don't see, desire, take, but rather be a person who hears, listens, and obeys. Lesson number three, loving God means we seek justice. We live right, we do what's right, and we help set things right. My son and my daughter, in a world where sin twists individuals and society, in a world filled with oppression and injustice, love what is right and do what is right, even if no one seems to notice, even if it doesn't look like it's making a lick of difference. God wants his people to embody righteousness and justice. It matters. It matters for your sake and the sake of everyone you meet. And finally, lesson number four, loving God means we expect God to be good. We believe that God will provide, especially when life falls apart. My son and my daughter, in times of uncertainty, when you feel like you are flying blind or worse, that your own instruments are lying to you, trust that God is good and that he will provide, even if it seems impossible. Remember that on the day that Jesus was killed, his loyal friends and followers thought it was the worst day in history, but God wrote a new ending, bringing forth life and turned it instead into the best day in the history of the world. This is what God does. God's refrain, the Lord will provide, is a model reply for each of us in the middle of the most agonizing questions of life. After our final seminary class of the semester last month, right before the end of our two-day session together, Gary was lecturing on Genesis 1, on the nature of man, on Imago Day, on how we are created to be God's selim. And then he just stopped, and he looked at all of us in the class, and he said this. He said, I think we dramatically underestimate how righteous we can be, how much God wants to do in us, how much God wants to do through us. This arrested me. Yes, it's true, sin is a corrupter. No one on the planet is sinless. But the Bible does show us that it's possible for a person to labor to be a faithful covenant partner with God. Not perfect, for sure. And I know the temptation is to say, well, I know I'm sinful and I'll mess things up and fail, so why even try? But the challenge in Scripture is that God, His Word, and His Spirit are all resources God Himself has marshaled to help us. We're not only human. We have God with us, too. We have God in us, too. And if we determine to, friends, we can live a life that is far more righteous than perhaps we even think, a life that has more impact on this world than perhaps we could ever imagine. My hope and my prayer is that the lessons we've learned from the story of Abraham help guide my children toward God. My hope and my prayer is that they, like Abraham, get completely caught up, body, mind, and soul, in a story and with a God who's bigger and better than they could have ever imagined. My hope and prayer 
is that they participate with God as he helps them become more and more righteous. I pray the same for me, for my wife, and I pray that for you too, dear listener. You too. May it be so. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for listening to Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God, written and narrated by David Tisch. Copyright 2021. Production Copyright 2021. For more information about the church that produced this, go to westgatechurch.org to find out more. Thank you so much for going on this journey with us.